Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. This symposium and panel discussion, recorded on June 1st, 2013, at the National Gallery of Art, honored the exhibition Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, 1909-1929, when art danced with music, on view from May 12th to September 2nd, 2013. The exhibition draws upon a 2010 exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the V&A, and draws upon some 80 works from the V&A's renowned collection of dance artifacts, and adds about 50 objects generously offered by more than 20 lenders, private and public. The Ballet Russe, the most innovative dance company of the 20th century, propelled the performing arts to new heights through groundbreaking collaborations between artists, composers, choreographers, dancers, and fashion designers. Founded by Russian impresario Serge Diaghilev in Paris in 1909, the company combined Russian and Western traditions with a healthy dose of modernism, thrilling and shocking audiences with its powerful fusion of choreography, music, and design. Sarah Kennel, associate curator in the Department of Photographs at the National Gallery of Art, provides a welcome and introduces the first speaker, Sang Shijin, a postdoctoral researcher at Leiden University. Welcome to the National Gallery. My name is Sarah Kennel. I'm an associate curator of photographs here at the gallery. I'm also the um, curator for the NGA's version of uh, Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, uh, 1909-1929, when art danced with the music. Um, <clears throat> I came to the gallery more than 10 years ago on a dissertation fellowship, writing my dissertation on the relationship between dance and the visual arts in early 20th century France. But when I got to the gallery, I looked around and I thought that it would be really great to work in a museum. And I sort of changed my direction from being an academic towards curating. And I found myself in the Department of Photographs, where I've been for about 10 years. Very happy there. Um, at times, people ask me, you know, what about your dissertation? Why don't you do a show on dance? And my stock response was, the National Gallery of Art is never going to do a show on dance. So I'm extremely happy to be eating those words, um, and I've been thrilled with the support that this institution has shown um, to the exhibition that was originally curated and conceived by Jeff Marsh and Jane Pritchard at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London in 2010. Jane is with us today. She'll be speaking in the panel this afternoon. And just as an additional plug, um, she and I will be giving a lecture tomorrow. Jane will be speaking on costumes, and it will be fabulous and fascinating. So if you haven't had your fill today, please come back tomorrow at 2. Um, <clears throat> though I did not know um, exactly what the symposium was going to be several months ago, I was asked to supply a title, and I came up um, rather um, in the last minute with um, Worlds of Art, Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. And this, of course, this title is a play on the world of art, Mir Iskutsva, which was the Russian art movement founded in 1898 by a number of young artists, including Alexandra Benoit. Um, and Diaghilev, of course, was a co-founder of the eponymous journal, which began to publish in 1899, just on the cusp of a new century. This magazine and the related exhibitions of the Worlds of Art group helped revolutionize Russian art, but the artists involved also helped, in turn, revolutionize art in the West in various ways. And many of the figures involved with Mir Iskutsva, including Diaghilev, Benoit, Leon Bakst, others, were instrumental in shaping the aesthetics of the Ballet Russe, and particularly in its early years. 
Um, though I didn't know the exact topics of our speakers today um, when I titled this symposium, it turns out that worlds of art was not completely infelicitous. Some of our speakers today will address directly the question of the world from which Diaghilev came, Russia, and explore the nature of the Ballet Russe's Russianness. It's ironic, of course, that this company, um, the Russian Ballet, founded by Russians, most of its early artists, um, dancers, choreographers were Russian. Its early ballets frequently took up Russian themes, never performed in Russia. It's also true that the company, particularly in its later years, became more firmly rooted in a pan-European context, and the nature of that Russianness changed. It was one in dialogue with and in contrast to, at times, Western European culture and the artists um, involved in that culture. And yet Russia, as a source of inspiration, a cultural formation, a political identity, an imagined community, remained one of the touchstones for the Ballet Russe and for Diaghilev through its 20 years of, for the 20 years of existence of the company. Our first speaker, San Shijin, takes up the provocative question of Diaghilev as a nationalist. Um, very often he's seen as kind of a, um, you know, a, a multiculturalist, um, embracing Western European aesthetics, turning his back to a certain extent on Russia and enjoying the freedom that Paris and Western Europe provided him. So I'm looking forward to hearing this talk. Our afternoon speakers as well, Alison Hilton and Tim Scholl, also explore Russianness of the Ballet Russe, focusing in turn on the visual arts and on the Russian artistic roots of the company and on the productions themselves. But we will also hear about other art worlds, through um, too, through Anna Weinstein, um, uh, our other morning speaker, who will examine Diaghilev's legal battles in America, shedding light on Diaghilev as a business manager, and examining the clash of cultures when Russian ballet came to tour America in 1916. And then finally, of course, we will also hear about Frenchness and about modernity and the musical relationship to modernity when Simon Morrison explores Poulenc's music for Nijinska's Les Biches, um, or The House Party, a contemporary life ballet that questions um, and explores the nature of contemporary experience. And finally, we will close today's symposium with a panel discussion between myself, um, art historian and American University professor Juliette Bellow, um, who's just published a book on the Ballet Russe um, and has been a consulting scholar for the exhibition, and Jane Pritchard, um, our esteemed curator from the Victoria and Albert Museum, who conceived this show in 2010. And I think um, one of the questions that the panel will address, I hope, is that... Um, is the nature of the different worlds in which this exhibition has traveled, um, the institutional differences between the Victoria and Albert um, Museum and the National Gallery, and the way that um, the difference in institutional collections, choices, directions, as well as scholarship, um, concepts of nationalism, and of course the ever-present pragmatic, pragmatic concerns shaped the exhibition in London versus shaping it here. Um, uh, and then um, after tomorrow, I just want to remind you that um, Jane will also be speaking on costumes specifically. I will be providing a general introduction to the exhibition before turning the um, 
the podium over to Jane tomorrow. Um, speaking of turning over the podium, I want to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Shen Shijin. He is the artistic director of the Netherlands Russia Year 2013. So he's been, um, he just came in from Moscow uh, yesterday. Um, and he's an associate researcher at Leiden University. His scholarly and curatorial activities focus primarily, though not exclusively, on Russian art, and he's curated a fascinating no, uh, number of fascinating exhibitions, including Russian Landscape in the Age of Tolstoy in 2003, Ilya Repin, um, Russians, Russia's Secret in 2001, as well as the non-Russian uh, Picasso Master of Line in 2006. And he's got some upcoming exhibitions that sound uh, fascinating. Soviet Myth, Socialist Realism in the Soviet Union, 1925 to 1965, opening this November. Um, is that correct? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, last November. Oh, it is still running. Excuse me. Um, that's right. It's 2013. Um, at the Friends Museum. Um, and, and then um, the Palif Collection of Russian Art at Palant House, which is up now. And um, from Vrubel to Malievich um, in Maastricht. And that will be also now. That is now. Um, last, but by no means least, Dr. Shigan is the author of Diaghilev, A Life, published in 2010 by Oxford um, Press. It is a groundbreaking and compelling account of Diaghilev's life, and it adds great richness to the ever-expanding field of ballet russe studies. It is also enormously readable and enjoyable and available for sale in our bookstore. Thank you. Please welcome Dr. Shigan. Thank you. Um, it's a great honor to be here um, and to, to watch the fabulous exhibition. Thank you, Sarah, for inviting me. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, Diaghilev's uh, Russian identification. Diaghilev, a Russian nationalist in the West, is the title of the um, talk. Diaghilev is commonly portrayed as a cosmopolitan, and indeed, if there ever was one archetypal citizen of the world, then of course it was the stateless Diaghilev, who with this Nansen passport, a travel document issued by the League of Nations for wandering refugees, led his company incessantly through Europe and the Americas. And there is a picture of one of the uh, tours here. While the company retained its canonical title, the Ballet Russe, the, comp the composition of the group became more and more diverse through the years. Polish, English, and Spanish dancers joined the troupe to compensate for the dwindling influx of Russians after World War I. French composers provided music, and Spanish, Italian, and French designers made costumes and sets. It was a pan-European community, as Sarah already said, with a nomadic dandy, Jagalev, pulling the bridles. At the same time, it is commonly accepted that Diaghilev's main ambition was the propaganda of Russian culture, as he said it himself. Or as Diaghilev put it in one of his earliest statements, and I quote, we Russians can have a serious and lasting significance in the history of European art. In the, um, one must have a fanatical belief in the strength and individuality of Russian art, in the essential importance of Russian talent for the life of modern Western culture, unquote. And a fanatical belief, indeed, he had. At a very young age, he was only 25 years old, two years before he started the journal Miris Kusva, The World of Art, 
Diaghilev expressed his ambition thus, and I quote, I want to bring up Russian painting properly, to clean it out, and above all, to show it to the West, to extol it in the West, end of quote. And another quote, it must result both in active participation in the life of Europe and in bringing that um, European art to us. We cannot do without it. It is our one guarantee of success and our one weapon against the routine that has kept our painting in fetters for too long, end of quote. Yet, Jagalev also believed that European culture needed Russia, albeit for a very specific reason. reason. And in quote again, but to be the victors in this glittering European tournament, we need thorough training and the courage of self-assurance. And similar slogans can be found everywhere in his personal writings from the beginning of his professional activity. It is good to reiterate, maybe, that nationalism was a widely shared and positively assessed phenomenon which was supported through the political spectrum and opposed by few. Nationalism was not tainted or disqualified yet by destructive world wars and was generally seen as a progressive, emancipating force, part of a larger effort to enlighten and educate the unshackled masses that were filling up 19th century cities in the developing world. It was thought to bring people self-awareness, knowledge of one's history, language, and geography. The study of history in schools, the fight against patois or local dialects, and for a unified national language are all in part consequences of nationalism. While the idea of promoting national self-awareness at home was widely accepted, the question what the content was of this national self, what constituted the concept, the concept of being Russian, was a matter of dispute. In general, various concepts of national identity competed with each other, promoted by various interest groups. This may have been true for all European states in the 19th century, but more so for Russia with its famous disconnect between the various elites and a subsequent, a subsequent disconnect between the elites and other segments of society. Diaghilev's brand of outgoing nationalist self-consciousness, to be sure, was by no means shared in the art world. Diaghilev started his career as an art critic and exhibition curator in fierce opposition to a school of painting called the Wanderers, or the Pirodvizhniki, uh, who celebrated a narrowly defined nationalism that tried to monopolize the Russian art world on the basis of national exclusivity and an almost total rejection of contemporary European art. Their leader, the charismatic and highly influential Vladimir Stasov, attacked Diaghilev continuously for capitulating to the degenerate Europeans and betraying Holy Russia. And I have a few of the typical kind of paintings that were made by these Pirodvizhniki. Here a very attractive work by Ilya Repin, a portrait of Dragomirova in a, a, a actually white Russian or Ukrainian attire. Um, very famous uh, work by uh, uh, Surikov, the so-called Bayarina Marozonova from 1887, and equally um, famous, the reply of the Zaporozhian Cossacks to the Sultan Mahmoud by Ilya Repin, made during a long period of time from 1878 till 1891. While all these paintings depict scenes that easily could be identified 
as typically Russian, they are still, from a nationalist perspective, highly ambivalent. The content may have been Russian, but the technique of painting, indeed the whole idea of secular oil painting itself, was from an exclusively European descent. And in a way, the whole way the Russian art world was um, regulated and constructed was from a European model, especially the, the French Academy. This ambivalence between exclusive nationalist pretensions and implicit European content is vividly illustrated by the following work of art by Viktor Vaznetsov. And this is the Sleeping Beauties, Pyshaya Krasavitsa, uh, an enormously uh, large painting. It's almost eight meters in uh, uh, white. Um, and it depicts, of course, the Sleeping Beauty in a, in a full uh, Russian uh, environment, uh, idealist Russian uh, environment, with a bear in the front, of course. You can see that here. Um, musician playing a, a so-called gusli, a, a Russian instrument, uh, Russian attire, of course, Russian architectural elements, etc., etc., etc. But, of course, all this could not eradicate the fact that The Sleeping Beauty is a French fairy tale by Charles Perrault. Diaghilev tried to solve this ambivalence by actively pursuing integration into the European art world, though maintaining elements of typical Russianness, as he conceived it. He therefore actively supported artists who used folkloristic motives or elements taken from Russian nature and used these in an idiom that used patterns from European Art Nouveau and especially the arts and crafts movement. Thus, he removed the untenable pretension of Russian exclusiveness while maintaining a sense of Russian distinctiveness. A few examples of these artists who were especially visible in the first years of the existence of his journal, The World of Art, we've seen here. These are works from uh, Maria Yakunchikova. This is a front piece of, uh, of uh, The World of Art. Um, also Yakunchikova. This is another, it's kind of um, a booklet on uh, the artist Yakunchikova, which was in Miris Kustva. Uh, this is by Karovin, another frontispiece of Miris Kustva. Um, again, Yakunchikova. Uh, this is Palienova, also uh, actually a, a painter of an older generation uh, who used these Russian motives. And again, uh, a work of Palienova. This is the Jarptitsa, the firebird. So actually, all these fairy tale themes were actively um, used in Miris Kustva, um, and many of them, of course, returned later in the Ballet Russe. In general, Jagalev was quickly perceived as a propagandist for this type of Russian arts and crafts movement, as we can see from the following caricature by the famous Pavel Sherbov, working under the pseudonym of Old Judge. And uh, here we see Jagalev um, buying um, um, something from a, a peasant artist. And here in the background, we see uh, the, the Russian, Russian uh, um, uh, village community shown in its worst forms, of course. Uh, so this was a, a caricature. And many of these caricatures existed where Diaghilev was shown in, in this particular context. Um, 
This concept, the use of Russian or semi-Russian elements derived from folk art or from Central Asian and Caucasian background in a European aesthetic context, became the, became the format for many productions in the Ballet Russe, among which are the Firebird, um, this is of course by Galavin, and even Cogdor, you could say, uh, this is again the Firebird. This is a, a, a non-realized poster by Box from 1915. But it has clear the um, uh, kind of uh, Art Nouveau uh, stylization. And this is uh, the Cogdor, because he promoted it as the first real Russian ballet. This was, of course, completely false, as Russian fairy tale ballets as Kanyok Gorbonyok and Zalataya Ribka, um, the, the, the golden fish, had been part of the repertoire for many years. The new thing about Firebird was, of course, that through Stravinsky's music and Golovin's and Bach's designs, the ballet was much better adapted to contemporary French taste, and this was, of course, what Yaglev intended. But beside the concept of providing a typical Russian aesthetic within the context of Euro European Art Nouveau, there was another idea of Russian national self that was less trendy but maybe closer to Diaghilev's heart. Diaghilev and his closest partners, Alexander Benoit and Konstantin Somov, indulged in, a, in an unfashionable adoration for the 18th century, and in Diaghilev's case especially the Russian 18th century. Their very personal understanding of this era heralded the idea that Russia as a nation only really started to exist after the reforms of Peter the Great and reached its high point during the reign of Catherine the Great. This Russia now was a natural part of Europe. People spoke French and Italian architects were building the capital. In the theaters, French and Italian opera companies were playing, and the nobility were, were wearing the same wigs as their European counterparts. In this understanding of national identity, Russia was not an ambivalent outsider in Europe, but a young and energetic junior partner in the European project. Diaghilev's idealization of the 18th century is illustrative of two seemingly contra contradictory ambitions, promoting national consciousness and repositioning R Russia within the constellation of Europe's diverse cultural elites. Of course, Jagalev knew very well that the sim similarities between Russia and Europe in this concept were mainly aesthetic. But this was exactly his point. Aestheticism, the sovereignty of beauty, was not superficial. It was essential for Diaghilev. In his value system, aesthetics rang first, and aesthetics proceeded, not originated from, content and context. Immediately from the beginning of his activity in the visual art world, Diaghilev started to investigate Russian art history of the 18th century, which was in many ways neglected by conventional scholarship at the time. In a relatively short time, he gained a name as a connoisseur of 18th century painting, publishing an even by his enemies well-received monograph on the court painter Dmitry Levitsky and a booklet on the surf painter Mikhail Shibanov. Diaghilev lost himself completely in his research into his 18th century heroes. As Benoit wrote, and I quote, 
he took to the matter with induration. And there were times when it was easier to find Yagalev under the vaults in the archives of the Imperial Art Academy, in the lower floors of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where the St. Petersburg part of the state archives were being kept, or on far Spalierna Street in the premises of the court's archive, then in his apartment on the Fontanka, unquote. Certainly, the high point of his propaganda of this nationalist idea was a remarkable exhibition of Russian portraits, at least 2,500, and according to some four or even 6,000 paintings, assembled in the Torrid Palace in St. Petersburg in 1906. And I don't have very good pictures of this. This is the poster of that exhibition, very poor quality. And here is um, uh, a photograph of the, um, of the palace where the ex- exhibition was held. The exhibition was firstly a historiographical enterprise. Almost all works came from family estates, from all over the Russian Empire, and even from Russian families abroad. In the eight-volume catalogue that Diaghilev assembled, the works are arranged by the family that is portrayed, not by the names of the artists. And the entries mainly provide information on the portrayed. Thus, it provides an exhaustive overview of the Russian nobility, a segment of society that was nearing the end of its centuries-long predominance. While the exhibition had no historical boundaries and also showed a fair amount of 19th-century works, the bulk was 18th-century, which clearly reflected Diaghilev's preferences. Diaghilev's books on 18th-century painters and and the research for the portrait exhibition really constituted Jagalov's intellectual maturity. And the vast organization, both financially and corporate, gave Jagalov the self-confidence to start the organization of his Paris seasons. It is, by all means, a key point in his life. His knowledge of the Russian 18th century also provided him with an endless flow of ideas, many of which would be used in his productions later in life. In Diaghilev's idealization of 18th century Russia, ballet played a critical role. Of course, no one would question the European pedigree of the Russian ballet, while at the same time it was an accepted thought in Diaghilev circles in the beginning of the 20th century that Russian ballet was superior to its contemporary French equivalent. Thus, the ballet provided the ideal platform for Diaghilev's identification of Russia as a junior partner. But he also had the belief that only through ballet, Russian culture could be, and I quote again, be the victor in the glittering tournament of European culture, as he formally called it. For Diaghilev, in ballet came together two essential things, a way to conquer Europe and wash away the enduring feeling, feeling of Russian inferiority vis-a-vis Europe, and it provided a new image with which Russia could identify. As he said to his dancers a few moments before the first performance ever of the Diaghilev Ballet, and I quote, I am very, very happy to give Paris its first taste of Russian ballet, as I believe ballet to be the most charming of the arts and our ballet to be unique in Europe. Diaghilev started to go to the ballet in the late 19th century. According to Alexander Benoit, in at least one version of his memoirs, 
He states that Diaghilev began to go very actively to ballet performances just before he started the Mirskusva Journal, so around 1897. Within a few years, Diaghilev was accepted as an authority on ballet, or at least as someone who wants to act like one, uh, as becomes clear from another caricature of Chervov during the Mirskusva years, where Diaghilev is revealed as a new Minerva, a new goddess of the arts, dressed in a tutu, with a few excited critics making study of his glorious behind. Um, well, you see it over here. Actually, you see this um, is the, uh, the, the symbol of uh, Miris Kusva used in the cover by Korovin that we saw uh, a few slides earlier. Let's go back to that. It is, of course, no coincidence that the first ballet that was presented in Europe by Diaghilev was a programmatic ballet on the 18th century, on the 18th century called Pavillon d'Armide, an interpretation or a pastiche, if you want, on French core ballet. It was a powerful manifesto of Russian self-consciousness, and this is one of the sketches that uh, Benoit made. Um, it was a powerful manifesto of Russian self-consciousness, and they made sure that their message was clear. The Russians had come to France to reinterpret European cultural history, and with a new energy and unspoiled vision, they would give Europe a new start. And here's another sketch by Benoit, very attractive. And um, some of the uh, set designs. Um, of course, uh, Pavillon d'Amide uh, in the Diaghilev form was um, a remake of uh, uh, the ballet that pre premiered in 1907, also by Benoit and Fokin. And this is again uh, the 1909 version. I got <clears throat> Uh, of course, works like Les Sylphides and Les Spectres de, de la Rose, very famous, were, of course, reflections on European romantic ballet, but can be seen in the same perspective as a way of trying to present Russia as a junior partner in the European sphere. After the war, Diaghilev put his whole reputation at stake for a complete reju rejuvenation of The Sleeping Princess, a Tchaikovsky Petipa ballet originally premiered in 1890 in a continued effort to canonize classical Russian ballet as the high point of a pan-European development. And I have a few famous um, designs by Baxt from this ballet. This is the, um, uh, the souvenir program. some of the um, printed designs. Um, uh, after the war, ballads, ballets with 18th century stylizations or themes followed constantly. Diaghilev spent many days, especially in Italian archives, to find music that was suited for these productions. And this is... Uh, uh, um, a production from 1917, Good Human Ladies, with, uh, uh, designed by Baxt. And this is, um, it comes later. In many ways, this can be seen as exercises in nostalgia that became more frequent after the war. This is La Femme, uh, no, I'm sorry. Um, this is uh, La Suzy Feminile. Um, especially, this ballet was important as the music was made by Cimarosa an Italian composer who worked at the court of Catherine the Great. 
The music contained a so-called bal russe, which Diaghilev incorrectly thought to be made for Catherine de Gate herself. The ballet was not a success, but it is a sign of Diaghilev's engagement with this ballet that he tried to revive it twice, first as L'Astuce Feminine and later as Cima Rosiana, as which it stayed on the repertoire till the end of his life. And this is, uh, other, this is Lifar um, in L'Astuce Feminine and or, or this already Cima Rosa. Um, Another ballet is La uh, uh, Tentation de la Bergère, um, based on um, um, uh, on, on designs by Gris, and based on a Molière piece. And another is here, and a very nice photograph. And again, uh, Les Tentations de la Bergère. This is Les Fâcheux, uh, with designs by Derain. And here you see photographs of that um, production. Uh, Zephyr et Flore, Flor, based actually on a ballet by uh, Didelot. Didelot um, was a choreographer who worked a long time, a French choreographer who worked in, in Russia for many years. And this is Ode. Although, of course, the cultural roots of these productions were predominantly French or Italian, they still were productions of the Russian ballet. And Diaghilev was always anxious to underline the Russian authenticity of his company, although, of course, his company became less Russian every year. Because of these Russian pretentious, uh, these Russian productions fitted in Diaghilev's overarching program of Russian integration in European culture. It is not the subject of this talk, but it goes beyond saying that this program became also more, more and more political after uh, the Russian Revolution and was by many identified as a wide Russian program, a qualification that Diaghilev fiercely resisted. It is also clear that his program would lose its meaning as Diaghilev was becoming more and more isolated, both ideologically and geographically, from his motherland. And this is a few um, uh, pictures from uh, Ode, which was a ballet in 1928, one of the last ballets on an 18th century team. Uh, it was an avant-garde ballet, of course, in its, uh, in its form, but the theme was on Lomonosov, who was a great philosopher and a scientist uh, and the founder of the first Russian university. Um, I'm quite sure that the degeneration of his initial goals was one of the main reasons for the depression that gripped Diaghilev in the last two years of his life and that quickened his early death by the results of neglected diabetes in 1929. Thank you very much for your attention. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.